Okay, take out your Bibles, if you would, and flip with me to Romans 14. So, Romans 14, and we're going to go into chapter 15. So, it's a huge section of Scripture, but I'm just going to read it and then summarize it so as to condense our time so we're not out here for three hours uh, <laughs> listening to me talk. But um, our message today is called Making Peace, and you'll see where that comes from here in a minute, but Making Peace... Uh, we've been in, since Romans 12, into very practical teaching about love and service of one another, and, and so Paul continues that discussion here in this section. Romans 14, verse 1, these are the words of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be both Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, who do you, uh, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord 
with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And finally, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we are grateful that we could gather here today, and I ask and pray that you would be blessed and pleased by our worship. Father, as we look to your word and learn about making peace in Christian community, I pray that your spirit would convict us where conviction is needed, cause us to repent where repentance is needed and comfort us wherever comfort is needed. We appeal to you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in Christ's name I pray, amen. So the past couple of weeks, we've been considering what Paul has to say about loving your neighbor. And this whole section, if you remember, starts off back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And he says, very um, sort of pointedly, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, So by the mercies of God, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Quite literally, life is an altar on which you climb and on which you die in service to other people. A living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as a direct result of the multiplicity of doctrinal statements that Paul has made earlier on in in Romans, it's led us to this very point. In order to be the just, righteous people of God who live by faith, that's what we know back in Romans, the just shall live by faith. In order to do that, though, we have to have a renewed mind, which we get by the work of the Holy Spirit, who sets forth in our very being a renewal of the whole person. But we also need to know what not to do, namely, not to be conformed to the world. When we're tested, we then discover and discern the will of God. So Romans 12, 1 through 2, sets the tone for the next section where basically the Apostle Paul pulls together Old Testament themes in order to conclude that the reason we can love and serve one another, to be united despite our various diversities, is all because... God's plan for Israel has come to its grand telos, its grand end in the Messiah, who then brought the blessings of the covenant to the rest of the world. In other words, we might say that the peace that you have as an individual because of the gospel, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, is to be a peace that is then brought to the nations. So the blessings of the gospel is to go to the nations. That's its appointed goal. And that's sort of what Paul when he starts with, you need to lay down your life on the altar of obedience to Christ, and then that then is supposed to spill out into the rest of the world. Now, however, we know that there can be problems on the way to this goal, this goal of the nations rejoicing and extolling Christ Jesus. Sometimes we major on the minors, meaning that the warp and woof of the Christian faith becomes minor 
tertiary, not even secondary things, but tertiary things like food and drink and days. Certainly our situation today is much different than the first century Christians to whom Paul was writing. But regardless, majoring on the minors isn't, for example, discussing a theology of the state instead of just talking about Jesus. Because people, people will say those things. Oh, you're, you dare talk about lockdowns and medical mandates and, and all these things, so you're just majoring on the minors. Well, no, we're actually applying the majors. <laughs> and so it's not that, it's not that. Majoring on the minors means making food or festivals or days or anything else that we find in God's good world the substance of our faith. That's what majoring on the minors looks like. But in fact, they, they are not. So here Paul has to issue a warning. He says, don't, don't judge with improper judgment. We ultimately answer to God alone. So that's kind of where he, his tone is. So let's consider our passage. And again, it's a larger passage. I'm not going I'm gonna, to I'm gonna summarize it. We've already read it. I'm not going to spend the next two hours pulling out every Greek tense of this verb and that noun and so on and so forth. But we're just going to kind of summarize it as we go. Now, Paul begins, he reminds the community that there are those who are weak in the faith that are among them. There are those who are weak in the faith. And he says, those who are weak in the faith aren't to be quarreled with. Don't bother with them. Stop harassing them. All right. Don't embrace them. Don't quarrel with them. He says the, the weak in faith, by the way, the weak in faith are not people who are just not as smart as the strong. Oh, you don't, you don't have the entire Westminster Confession of Faith memorized? What's wrong with you? He's not talking about a weak person. It's just someone who's just dumber, <laughs> doesn't know the doctrine of the Christian faith. Rather, the weak are people who haven't fully matured to the point of knowing and grasping the fuller implications of Christianity. Their conscience, for example, hasn't quite fully matured as some of the other quote-unquote strong that were among this community. So what do we do with people, with folks who may have areas of immaturity that need to be developed? And he says, rather than debate them and prod them and harass them and try to get them to be mature through our own volition and will by just telling, what's wrong with you? Why can't you just figure it out? That sort of attitude. Instead of doing that with our opinions, we're supposed to welcome him or her. We're supposed to welcome them and not be divisive towards them because we have a disagreement on something of conscience. And it's a simple concept, of course, but it's a hard one to practice. Now, the issue in Rome was apparently an issue of food. One believes he can eat anything, and another abstains from meat and only eats vegetables. And just so we're clear, we're not talking about dietary preferences, okay? It's not the vegans versus the carnivore dieters. That's not the first century Rome thing. I know we never talk about those things in our group. <laughs> We're talking about meat sacrificed to idols in pagan temples and then offered up in the marketplace, which would have been in the first century Rome on every single street corner you found. Pagan temple after pagan temple everywhere, meat that was sacrificed regularly in every single one of those places was then put in the marketplace to be bought and sold. So if you're a first century Christian, you go to buy meat from the butcher, and guess what? That meat, almost without fail, would have been sacrificed to some sort of pagan deity. That's just, that's the world they were swimming in. 
Now, some Christians didn't care that the meat had been sacrificed to a non-existent idol. They just, they didn't care. They threw it in their stew and enjoyed the meal. Others felt as though they couldn't partake and that it somehow made them guilty of idol worship had they partaken of the meat. So that, just so we're clear, again, not, not dietary preferences. This was actual pagan land. <laughs> and they had discussions with how to, to sort through that. One is fine sitting down and eating that cheeseburger that just went to the Roman, you know, God. Name your God. And others said, ah, I can't do that. That's the issue here. So the point is, though, that no one should despise the one who abstains, and the weaker brother shouldn't pass judgment on the one who eats. So that's the issue here in Rome. The reason, of course, is because God has welcomed both. The eater shouldn't despise the non-eater. In the kingdom there are no taboos, only that which is sin and that which is not sin. One of the most freeing verses in the Bible is when we find in the letter of 1 John that sin is the transgression of the law of God. Sin is not the transgression of your friend's feelings. It could be sin, but it may not be. So the weaker then shouldn't be hassled for, or, or bothered or, or cajoled into breaking their conscience for doing anything wrong. He's simply not exercising a right. He is theologically right in partaking if he chooses, but he's not exercising that right, so don't you dare batter him. That's the issue. Or badger him, I should say. Paul asks a question in verse 4. He says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? In other words, the stronger isn't the master in this situation, and the weaker brother is the slave to be bossed around as such. Instead, both are slaves of the one master, Jesus Christ. So, don't, don't contemn, contemn someone who is being upheld and, and, stand, and able to stand because of Christ Jesus. Okay, The brother you wish to look down on and badger for whatever issue, they're standing in Christ. Don't you dare knock them over and act like they're not. Don't be censorious to your brother whose conscience is bound one way or another. Jesus is the master of this household, not you, so don't castigate him. In verse 5, we have an issue, another issue. Some folks judge that a certain day is important and another may not. Being convinced in your own mind is what is important, he says. So the reason Paul says this is because presumably each is doing it in honor of the Lord. If you are eating in honor of the Lord or you are celebrating a day in honor of the Lord, I just think of birthdays, for example. You know, everybody wants to feel special on their birthday, but eh, it's really not that big of a deal. We're not told in the Bible, thou shalt celebrate your birthday every year with cookies and cake and whatever food you want. So it's fine, though, if you want to do things that are special on your birthday. But just because someone doesn't celebrate their birthday the way you do, doesn't give you permission to then, you know, judge them or, or um, castigate them or belittle them. So if someone is motivated by a certain detail of God's word and genuinely wants to serve God, then there shouldn't be a, ca a cause for complaint. Just let it be. Don't make a big deal out of it. Move on with your life. Now, we know that we don't seed ground on the essentials of the Christian faith. We, those are hills we die on. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, the, the um, infallibility of Scripture, the, the person of Jesus. Those are the essentials that we, don't, we never seed ground on, no matter what else the world's doing. We never seed ground. But 
We also are called not to quibble over non-essential or peripheral issues of the faith. faith. Things like food, things like days, things like festivals, and so on. Now, verse 7, I think, is a powerful verse that jumps out at us. It says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. So everything we do must be centered and motivated by God. From birth to death, that's what he's referring to. From beginning to end, your whole life, we are the Lord. So act like it. Christ lived, he died, he lived again, he is Lord of the living and the dead, and all belong to him. So again, act like it. Act like that is true, because it is. So God welcomes all believers. He welcomes all believers. The Lord makes a stand. The Lord is the object of our work and our labor. We give thanks to God for such things, and in our living and our dying, we belong to God. So if you're quarreling, Paul says, knock it off, because it's not about you. Paul brings in another eschatological concern, something in the far-off future. He says that we all face the judgment seat of God, not the judgment seat of your neighbor or your brother or your sister. Every knee shall bow, Paul quotes of Isaiah. We all give an accounting to God. So again, knock off the quarreling and knock off the bickering. We all live in the new age of Christ's kingdom, so live like that's true. We live in the present kingdom, so make your lives presently conformed. It and we all face the judgment of God, so don't you dare judge one another ahead of time. And the judgment we're talking about is condemnation, false condemnation. Don't don't condemn your brother or your sister as though you are the one who's going to judge them in the end. The Christian family, that's who we are, means that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, not Caesar. And as such, Christ's kingdom takes priority over all things, including, and especially, food and days. Christ's kingdom takes priority more than anything else in our community. So think of it like this. It's not enough to not look upon your brother or sister with contempt. He says in verse 13, we're not even supposed to put a stumbling block there. Don't just not condemn him. Don't even give rise to the occasion where you might do something, you know, uh, don't invite the former alcoholic for a beer. (laughs) Let's talk about it over beer. You know, don't even cause the brother to stumble. Don't even go there. And here Paul says that we need to make, we need to avoid making life difficult for the weak. Maturity sees that nothing is unclean in itself. But for the immature, the thing they believe to be unclean is unclean. Their conscience is putting them there, he says. So don't don't judge one another falsely. He says, actually, make a better judgment. Here's a better judgment you can make. Don't put an obstacle in front of someone. Judge that if you're going to judge anything. Don't put an obstacle in front of someone. And this means, as Jesus tells us in John 7, 24, we need to judge righteously. Rushtuni writes, he says, responsible judgment requires responsible men. Irresponsible uh, judgment comes from irresponsible men. And we are called to responsibility and dominion. In other words, the wise will judge his weaker brother or sister as more important than himself. And in this wisdom, he will then not cause a problem for him or her. You want to be a mature, wise, judge, uh, properly and soberly judging person? then think of your brother or your sister as more important than yourself. Don't try to cram your opinions in their brain. 
don't. Certainly talk about things, but don't falsely condemn them. If one will not exercise mature judgment, he will grieve his brother, and thus he will not walk in love. That's verse 15. So a strong brother trying to exercise his freedom, which may be a problem for the weaker brother, will then be spoken of as evil. Paul kind of turns the table. If you're going to insist on badgering the weaker, you're the one who is now evil, even though you have a clean conscience. You are the one who is acting evil. And here's the crescendo of the argument, verse 17. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He, d- he doesn't mean that the kingdom is spiritual and everything else is worldly, sort of a revived Neoplatonism. He's not saying that. Rather, food and drink, although they are important to our very existence, pales in comparison to joy and peace and righteousness. Martin Luther, the reformer, he summarized this this way. He says, It is as if he were saying, Your presumption that the kingdom of God is yours is in vain if you disturb the peace because of food and are so eager to defend what you eat and drink as if the kingdom of God consisted in these things, as now is very frequently the case. Don't act like the kingdom is yours to dictate by how you respond to your brother or your sister. Paul goes on, he says, Christ is acceptable to God, which means we should be all uh, know that we're all acceptable, acceptable to Him. Christ is acceptable to God, which means it should be acceptable to men, verse 18. So in order to make peace, that's the aim here, we have to pursue. You ha- it's, it, not to insult your intelligence here, but if you're going to make peace, you have to make it. It doesn't just happen. You have to pursue it. In order to make peace, we have to pursue what makes for peace. If we're going to mutually upbuild and grow one another, then we have to do that. We have to be encouraging towards one another. We have to serve each other. We have to pray for each other. We have to quite literally lay our lives down and consider the person next to you more important than you and what you want, your agenda for that person. So to, to veer off into the ditch of non-essentials is to slow down the kingdom of God. And Paul says not to do this, especially for the sake of food. Everything is clean, but it becomes evil when you make another stumble. Paul gives a a second coat of paint. God's work in creating and building and sustaining the church should not be destroyed, not by anyone. So how dare you do that? See, Christianity quickly turns into humanism when you try to derive your holiness from something like food. It turns into humanism the minute you decide that the kingdom hinges upon your particular view of a really non-essential issue. Moreover, your faith is between you and God, he says. It's not between you and your brother or your sister. Your faith is between you and the Lord, not anyone else. So there's, there's, there's no reason to pass judgment on the one who esteems one day over another. There's no reason for it. E- even worse is trying to cajole someone into thinking the way you do about something minor. For if the weak is pressured into eating something, thus going against conscience, proceeding from a position of fear and not faith, guess what? He's in sin. And you're the one that helped your brother sin. So it's not a sin to doubt. But to act on it when one isn't fully convinced is to fall under condemnation because the just shall live by faith, not fear, not social pressure, not doubt, not people-pleasing, 
oh, I'm just going to do this to please them. No, no, no. The just live by faith. What doesn't proceed from faith is sin, he says. In chapter 15, he kind of moves and he drives the point home by referring to several uh, Old Testament passages to prove his main point. In the context of Christian community, the strong are indebted and obligated to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to be about pleasing ourselves. So instead of pleasing ourselves, we should try to please our neighbor, building him or her up in the faith. That's verse 2. Christ is our example. He came to do the will of the Father and suffered on a cross. The Bible, he says in verse 4, all of those stories in the Old Testament, all of those things that happened historically, the law itself, all of it was written for our instructions so that we know how to patiently endure and thus have hope. So the, the, the Messiah's suffering, Christ's suffering, is the paradigm of hope. You want to know what hope is? Look there, he says. We can live in harmony with one another by recalling to mind who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He became a servant to the circumcised in order to fulfill Israel's commission and Israel's obligation to the world, thus opening up the gospel blessings to the rest of the world. His resurrection marked him out as Israel's Savior, the world's true Lord. So Christ, literally, he says, Christ has welcomed you. Why wouldn't you welcome your brother or sister? See, in quoting these several places, he pulls from Deuteronomy, Isaiah, he pulls from the Psalms, and that's Paul's main thing. He loves quoting from those three books. But he pulls together all of these messianic themes which pertain to the Gentiles being brought into the kingdom. And, and, and God's, his, part of his point is God's promises that were secured in Jesus means that we can trust in the lordship of Christ over against the lordship of Caesar. Remember, we're talking about first century Christians in Rome, right in, right in Caesar's backyard, who are dealing with the social pressures of Roman paganism every single day. And he says, look to Jesus. Look to him. He's bringing in Jews and Gentiles together into this kingdom. So don't lose sight of that. Trust in the Lordship of Christ. God raised him from the dead. And because of that fact, that historical and theological fact, we can be filled with peace, he says peace and and not only be equipped with peace but we have the interminable unending power of the holy spirit who marks our lives by hope so that's the big argument that's what he's telling us to do and th- and this is let's kind of pull pull back here for a second this is a large passage but it's an important one because paul brings his initial point that he made all the way back in chapter 1 His point about Jesus being the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world, he brings it back into focus again. He he starts off in chapter 1, the first five verses, talking about Christ being David's son, and he's risen from the dead, and and then he sort of goes off on his theological doctrinal treatise, and then he comes to the end and he brings it back together and says, look, Jesus cares about things like this. He cares about you being strong and how you treat the weaker brother. He, He cares about those things. Because those things are tied to the greater mission of, the, of our, our seeing of the world brought to its knees in repentance. So at first glance, it, it appears as though Paul is merely dealing with an issue that may have come up in the church of Rome. Oh yeah, by the way. And he dealt with it in 1 Corinthians as well. But no doubt, the return to the Jews to Rome, if you remember, Claudius had ex- exiled them and sent them away, but they ended up coming back when Nero took over. But the Jews were coming back to Rome... 
after Claudius was dead, and, and them coming back into the fellowship would have created a new social crisis to have to work through. But, but to separate this passage from whatever has come before, it would be a, a colossal mistake. Remember, all the way back since chapter 2, Paul, Paul has woven together through the entire letter the relationships of the Jews and the Gentiles. It's been very important for him to deal with. And now he comes to this passage. You remember in Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11, he dealt with election, predestination, the doctrines of grace, and the covenant tree, which, which contains the, the natural Jewish branches and the engrafted Gentile ones as well. We talked about that months ago. You may not remember. I, I barely remember. I don't expect you to. But that's what he covers in Romans 9 through 11. And since he believes that the gospel really is the hope of the world, he is unashamed to say such things. I, I'm unashamed of the gospel, he says. Because this gospel has something huge to do with the rest of the world and with you and your brother who's sitting next to you while you eat. It has to do with everything. He deals with the apparent food problem by sticking to his main argument anyway. anyway. And what is, what is his main argument? Well, Jesus, not Caesar, is the true Lord of the world. And there is a whole set of historical inner workings of God's covenant promises that we are called to participate in. And when we, for example, participate in the sufferings of the Messiah, we realize that in that we can have courage, we can have peace, and we can have hope in the suffering. Paul has revisited the history of Adam and Abraham. He's talked about David, the history of Israel several times, not least here in, in chapter 15. And because of it, he's explaining the roots from which we have grown into this beautiful, huge covenant tree. This is how, how we grow. He's saying in the middle of this particular custom and social problem, this issue of food and days, he, he says, look, Look what God has done in history. Look what he has done in Jesus, who has been raised from the dead and declared Lord of the world. And get some perspective so you don't find yourself adopting pagan, humanistic worldview items. Get some perspective. You're sitting there bickering over food. Let's have some perspective here. There's something bigger at play. And the point of this discussion in chapter 14 and 15 is to deal with the problem of doing life together when you don't see eye to eye. What do you do in that situation in a community like ours where we may not see eye to eye on certain things? And in not things like the Trinity, but things like food, things like um, days, celebrations, things like... Tradition, family traditions. Oh, your family tradition is that. That's weird. What do you do in those situations? Should you try to for? How how do they? How do Christians live side by side when we don't always agree on everything? How uh, should you even try to force yourself onto others with whatever new hobby horse that you've adopted? Rather than scolding the Christians in Rome and Paul saying, "Oh, guys, stop being so silly." Paul urges something altogether different. He, ins he rather insistently says that every Christian, every Christian, strong and weak, depending on the issue, every Christian should learn to see past whatever issue is at stake and instead think about mutual submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole passage is gospel-centered. 
This is how you deal with problems in Christian community. Okay, I'm going to give you very quickly 16 things. If you're writing, don't write. Just stop. Okay, because I'm blowing through this fast. This is how you deal with problems in Christian community. One, don't pass judgment because like him or her, you too are a servant of, a servant of God. And you are also a servant that God approves of. And God makes you stand and makes him stand. It is by grace through faith. Two, whatever the position, whatever the issue, whatever position you hold, be fully convinced in your own mind. Otherwise, just be quiet. <laughs> and honor the Lord the way you're supposed to. Number three, none of us lives and dies to ourselves but to the Lord. So don't, don't think that your life is yours because it's not. What do you have that you have not been given? One of my favorite verses from Paul. Nothing. The answer is nothing. The clothes on your back, the vehicle you drove to get here, it was given to you by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have nothing. Not even the breath in your lungs is yours. It's God's. Number four, why are you judging again? Ultimate judgment comes from the Bema seat, the judgment seat of God to whom we will all stand before. Each will give his own accounting to God. You don't owe your brother or sister any accounting for why you may do the things you do, unless it's sin. If it's not sin, you owe no one any explanation. Number five, don't pass judgment. In fact, don't even put something in the way of your brother, and I don't care how free you are. I'm free in Christ. Yeah, but you're putting something in the way of your brother or your sister. So now you're sinning. Number six, if you want to love, then consider how best to serve the weaker brother. Otherwise, you'll destroy him. The first question we should come to with, with dealing with conflict or these sorts of things in Christian community is, how can I love them? How can I fulfill the law of God in this relationship? Number seven, the kingdom is the main thing. Never forget it. The kingdom is the main thing. Never forget it. Number eight, we all serve Christ, our master. The minute you cause division in the church with your particular interests is the minute you have become the evil one. And that's when the process of church discipline starts. Number nine, make peace and practice mutual upbuilding. Making peace requires making peace. Sometimes it requires just communicating. Just coming to someone and say, you know, you said this the other day, and I may have mis misinterpreted it, but I would like clarification so that we can have peace. Because we're supposed to make peace. Number 10, don't destroy the work of God among you. Do not destroy the work of God among us. Sort of the Achan moment, who kept some things back in Israel, lost some wars. Because one guy decided not to obey God, the entire Israelite army suffered. There's a principle there. Number 11, your faith is between you and the Lord, not between you and your sister. Your faith is between you and God, not you and your brother or sister. So don't live for their approval. Don't try to, to please them by not being truthful. Oh, I'm just going to tell them what they want to hear because I'm scared of what they might say. None of that. None of that. Your faith is between you and the Lord. Number 12, worse than eating something is eating something against conscience by doing it based on fear and not faith. And we're not talking about food, primarily. There's more to it. 13, if you're strong, then be strong enough to bear the weakness of the weak. You want to be strong? You want to be mature? Then don't just tolerate the weaker person, the person you disagree with. Don't just tolerate it. Love them. 
14, be strong enough to build up and not tear down. You want to be a strong person? Strong people love to tear things down. We, we love the deconstruction process here at Cross and Crown. We really, really love it. But there's more to it than just that. Be strong enough to build up. 15, Christ is our example. He was scorned and he endured and exhibited hope. When you have endurance and, and the encouragement of Christ, you can live in harmony with one another, but only according to Christ Jesus who binds us together. We can't always be harmonious on every little issue. I mean, we can try. There's a lot of stuff this church really agrees on, things that most churches never talk about, won't even touch with a 10-foot pole. They'll never talk about it. They'll just shut down their churches and do whatever the state tells them. And we say, well, maybe there's actually a theology behind this we should consider. Most churches are not even touching that at all. But guess what? What really binds us together is Christ. That's really what binds us together. And lastly, 16, welcome each other because something bigger is going on. Welcome one another because, Paul says, essentially something bigger is going on than what is what little squabbles we have here, right? Namely, the salvation of the world. The nations are coming and they need hope, so be filled with the Holy Spirit. A hope-filled church sows hope in a hopeless world. Now the point here isn't to just live in peace and quiet without conflict. Oh, we can't talk about those issues ever. So we have to walk on eggshells with each other. That sort of nonsense is, uh, in a family setting, that's terrible. In a church setting, that's a terrible thing. So don't do that. And, and that's really the narrow point that misses the crux of the argument. The point is we must build something. And what we must build is a peaceful life of praise and worship and service of God and neighbor. That's what we're supposed to build. With one mind and with one mouth. That's literally what Paul's getting at in the Greek translation here. With one mind and one mouth. That's the phraseology. We are to be a close-knit bunch loving and serving one another so that in our collective praise and service something happens in front of a watching world. By God's grace, we are a church of what? Maybe 60, 70 people. But I'll tell you, we, we make big splashes. <laughs> we do. And I praise God for it. But the world is watching. The message that we want to convey, and this is clearly something Paul wanted to deal with, with this first century church in Rome. But the message we want to convey is that we're not worshiping the particular God down the street in the particular temple, just adopting whatever humanist whim of the day. No. We are worshiping the one true God of Israel and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the world is summoned to come along and join in the celebration. So the problem with intercommunal conflict, which is exacerbated by selfish people who want to judge their brother or sister hastily, is that it, it disrupts the life of the church and it disrupts the mission of the church. So many churches are stuck, and they're stuck because they bicker about carpet color. I've been in those churches. I've seen them face to face. We got a decision to make. Oh, what's that? What shall we paint the wall? What color? My word, it takes the convening of everyone and a two-thirds majority vote. It's ridiculous. But don't let that stuff disrupt us. Don't, don't let it disrupt the mission of the church. Jesus is the Lord of the strong and the weak, so why make haste in sowing discord? If you despise your brother, you are saying that the church is yours. That's what you're saying. 
The church is yours, yours to control, yours to dictate by your own fiat will. And when we fail to love, the minute we fail to love one another, we adopt humanism, this man-centered way of viewing our brother, our sister, or our neighbor. And humanism is always motivated by power and authoritarianism every single time, trying to control people. And this type of squabbling in the church festers and eventually it metastasizes into this full-blown cancerous situation. Suddenly, everyone's up in arms about what? Food. Days. The latest conspiracy theory. Which, you should be a conspiracy theorist. It's biblical. But let's not let those things that may divide metastasize in our community. So don't lose sight, Paul says, of who Jesus is and what he has done. And listen, at the end of the day, I'm going to close here. At the end of the day, this is not about you. Man, if, like, maybe that's a sign we all need in the morning. This is not about you. Just put it in your mirror with an arrow right to your face. <laughs> Write it in lipstick. I don't care. But this is not about you. That's really what Paul's getting at. It's just not. Stop treating your brother and sister this way as though salvation hinges upon you convincing them to bend to your will. This family doesn't do things this way, so I'm going to murmur about it. Stop it. Don't do it. It's not about you. And this sort of controlling behavior happens all of the time in every situation. Wherever there are people, this goes on. And it must be repented of. So we're supposed to welcome those around us the exact same way that Jesus Christ has welcomed you. And anything short of this is rebellion and treason against the gospel that we preach. So if you want Christian reconstruction to work, it starts here. Very basic stuff. How to love and serve the other. So welcome, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, which is to say freely and graciously. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning, the, the sunshine, the breeze. It's a glorious day that you have made, and so we are thankful, and we glorify you for it. And Lord, we thank you for this passage and what it teaches. It teaches us a lot, and it, and it ought to bring humility, and I pray that conviction would be brought, that all of us, myself included, every single one of us, even our kids, would see one another the way that you, Jesus, see us to truly make for peace in a community in front of a watching world that is in desperate need of peace. So Father, would you give us your Holy Spirit, give us what he has for us, for the will of God. And I pray for our time together, our fellowship, our food, as we take of communion here in this agape feast, Lord, may you be magnified and glorified in Christ's name. Amen.